Welcome to the TRI Research Group podcast, the latest in palliative care and end-of-life research. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Natalie Anderson. Natalie completed her PhD recently, um, which explored resuscitation decision-making in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Welcome, Natalie. It's great to have you here today, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your work. Um, Just give us a little bit of an idea of your background, because I think that's really important for the listeners to hear about. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah. Um, so I, my background is I'm a nurse. I also uh, have a background in psychology. That's I've got, um, yeah, degree in, two degrees in psychology. And I'm really interested, I guess, in, in health professionals' preparation and support. Um, I've also worked uh, on ambulances a long time ago. And, uh, and I still work in the emergency department as a nurse um, and in intensive care. So I have always had an interest in resuscitation um, and in the clinical decision-making in, in contexts where um, there's a lot of uncertainty and complexity. Mm-hmm. Great. And um, you did your PhD with publications. So you did an amazing job getting five publications into peer-reviewed journals, which is which has been great. Oh, six. Seven. Seven. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's even <laughs> better. <laughs> well, that's even better. That's amazing. That's great. So today what we're going to do is, um, I guess, focus on one of those publications. And the one that you've chosen is was um, published in the International Emergency Nursing Journal. And it's entitled, When Resuscitation Doesn't Work, a Qualitative Study Examining Ambulance Personnel Preparation and Support for Termination of Resuscitation and Patient Death. So tell me a little bit about um, this particular publication. So uh, it it sort of sat in the um, the second phase of my PhD research, and I'd looked at um, the experiences of, of uh, paramedics when they were making these decisions uh, to, to perhaps stop um, CPR. Or in New Zealand, they're also authorised uh, to withhold CPR in a situation mm-hmm. where um, they're quite confident that it's, um, it's not likely to be successful or that it's not wanted um, or that it's not warranted because it's come very long, long time after the patient's died. Um, and one of the things that that phase sort of, uncovered was that it was really difficult to to stop and that they get a lot of training and they're very good at providing resuscitation um that they practice it lots and lots uh but that stopping resuscitation involves a really challenging kind of contextually specific set of skills that perhaps there isn't so much emphasis on uh, in their training and so I was really interested to know, you know, when, when resuscitation doesn't work and they are faced with, you know, terminating that resuscitation or even not starting, um, you know, what preparation do they get for that scene where a patient has died? Um, and, and obviously it can be an upsetting and, and uh, challenging kind of situation to be in. So how are we supporting them emotionally and clinically with their education? Um, to cope with that. Mm. So when you were running the focus groups and your findings, did you find that there were specific aspects of a paramedic's background that might influence their response around that? Yeah, so um, these focus groups that I ran were with um, educators, leaders, uh, people who were involved in that pastoral care, that that peer support network that they have uh, in the ambulance service. 
And a, a lot of them noted that life experience was incredibly helpful to them in terms of uh, feeling confident, recognising death, um, and also sort of caring for those who are, who are present at the scene of a death and their potential distress or their uncertainty, um, obviously breaking bad news, all of these kind of skills uh, were things that some people had essentially acquired through their personal experience and exposure to death. And, you know, it used to be that paramedics were often uh, middle-aged men mm. who had had previous jobs and had lived a bit of life. Um, they'd been out there, they'd had their own deaths and challenges, they'd been around other people who were bereaved. Um, whereas typically today, the, the um, graduate paramedics are coming straight through high school um, and they're armed with a lot of knowledge and skills, but they might not have had quite as much life experience or exposure to things like death and grief. So how does, um, it just made me thinking about the sort of paradigm in which paramedics are trained in, you know, we see them as being life-saving services. How much of that, in terms of the context in which they're trained in, influences how comfortable they feel about either not resuscitating or stopping? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting observation um, that the, the technical skills that are taught, not just in paramedicine, mm-hmm. but also in medicine mm-hmm. and nursing, mm-hmm. um, are given a lot of value because they're quite, uh, I'm not going to say they're easy to teach, but you can teach them in a structured way and you can assess them in a structured way. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use a checklist and say, are they checking for a pulse? Are they stuck? That's a bad example. But are they starting CPR? What are they doing technically in terms of using um, skills? Whereas non-technical skills um, are very context-specific and there's not one right way or or wrong way of doing things. Uh, And so I think that they are given less value in part because they are harder to assess. Mm. They're harder for us to, um, I guess, measure against quality standards. Um, And so, yeah, a lot of the education of health professionals is around technical skills uh, and I think there is a strong message coming through that being able to communicate effectively with other people is a massive part of being a health professional. And we're both smiling because we're, we're nurses and we know this. Mm. Um, but how you teach that um, mm. and how you give that importance in your curriculum is mm. uh, probably a whole nother podcast, really. So in terms of like I'm thinking about, you know, the simulations that I've been involved in in my career where we have to update our cardiac you know, our CPR skills and whatnot, when they're simulating a an arrest, um, I can't remember ever being in a simulation where the resuscitation failed and we had to then move on and deal with the um, fallout from that, either with each other, our colleagues and a resuscitation team, or in fact with bystanders. Is, did you, is, is that... Right? Is that yeah? Is so that something that could be looked at. It is something that um, that researchers have started to question, really. Um, and I specifically asked when I was talking to these people who who are responsible for running simulations, uh, do you ever go on in a simulation past the point of um, not achieving a return of spontaneous circulation, not resuscitating? And for the most part, the answer was no. Um, that I think. St John have authorised their emergency ambulance um, personnel to be able to certify death 
And so there has been an introduction of simulating the death certification process, but uh, quite a few educators have said that that can happen in a sort of vacuum where there isn't actually, um, you know, bystanders watching or uh, people weeping in the background mm. or uh, challenging environmental conditions or any of the other real contextual factors that we know um, will usually occur while you are, you know, in the presence of someone who's died. Um, and, yeah, there's a bit of anxiety around simulating death and whether that might be overly upsetting for health professionals, mm. um, which is quite an interesting conversation I've had um, as a health educator uh, but it's really important to know that that actually more than 85% of the cardiac arrests that paramedics attend end in death in the field. Mm. Ultimately, either they don't start CPR or they, they make a really good attempt, but um, it's not successful and they have to terminate the efforts on scene. So I don't know that uh, at the moment that paramedics are very well prepared for that vast majority of cases where they're, where they're um, ending up with a death. Um, and I think the other important thing is we don't know an awful lot about what kind of care is being given after that resuscitation stops and what really great care looks like. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that it has quite the same value perhaps as um, providing really good resuscitation efforts to us. Just going back to what you were saying around life experience and how um, that helped um, some of the paramedics in your focus groups to make decisions and feel comfortable with the decisions that they were making. Was there any sense that there was some role modelling of that type of um, practice or peer group, peer support type work, you know, um, within the paramedics you interviewed? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, again, you know, it's a well-established model in, in healthcare that having mentors or preceptors, people that you can observe mm. um, what psychologists like to call social modelling, other mm. people behaving in a way that you think, hey, they did a great job of that. That's a great way to, um, you know, to approach that problem. Maybe some of the, the phrases that people use to warn families that the resuscitation looks like it might not be successful. Um, that's one of the kind of things that, that the more experienced paramedics might be modelling uh, to someone who's a novice, like kind of gate, they call it firing warning shots, but just gauging whether the people present, the family, perhaps the caregivers, are aware that this is a person who's in cardiac arrest and that, that death might be one of the outcomes. Um, and seeing someone else use the right words and saying, you know, his heart has stopped, we're doing everything we can, but at the moment it's not working, um, can be really helpful for someone who can't even imagine what kind of words are appropriate for that situation. Um, I think sometimes historically we've protected novices from scenes of death. And we, we sort of say, look, if you don't want to, you know, come when I talk to the family, that's okay. And that's actually really problematic and that, that we are depriving them of an opportunity to see someone who knows how to have that difficult conversation uh, to be exposed to acute grief um, and actually really encouraging people to get that exposure and, and to see someone who has experience doing it well is a critical part of your professional development in a lot of health professions. Yeah, it's really interesting because having worked in palliative care for many years, and I think about my early days, I would literally do that as watch um, more experienced nurses in the field having these conversations. And then 
picking out the bits that I felt comfortable with and, and trialing them out. Mm. But I, I think when I look back, that was quite a long winded way of learning those skills. And it's about, you know, how do we take what people observe, conceptualize it, and then teach it? Mm. Um, and is there any evidence of that in those in the paramedic space about Yes, you know, observing and watching really skilled people, but sometimes if you just do that, it's like, oh, well, this looks like magic, and they don't know how to conceptualise it. What is that specific skill that experienced paramedic used with that family? Yeah, so there there are some, um, you know, in acute care, we love our um, acronyms and Mm. and things like that, and there there are some structured guidelines around breaking bad news in particular, um, they are really derived from the, the palliative context mm. and from oncology contexts. But I think that um, certainly they've been applied in the emergency department context, which is just a little step closer to paramedic context, not quite the same. Um, but I think para- I do teach paramedic students around this kind of area, and I think they do value that structure, mm. that having some theoretical underpinning helps them to load their learning on and yeah, see yeah. things done well and yeah, why yeah. they're done well and, and what was the fit. specific skill being used there what did yeah, you see yeah. yeah so um I think there are some things that are being introduced into that space mm. but it's also really important to acknowledge that the kind of context that paramedics are encountering death are really unique mm. um, and really diverse Absolutely. and sometimes really distressing you know, it's Absolutely. the first time they've met the family it's not like an oncologist or a, um, a palliative care uh, expert who might have got to know a lot about the psychosocial context they've mm. just rocked up their 10 more 10 minutes or half an hour ago mm. so um, I think we also need to develop some stuff that acknowledges the, the unique kind of setting that they're in mm. yeah in your um in this paper which is um great just getting back to that you talk about um uh, the need for support during the event um as it's unfolding and as it's occurring and the need for organizational backup Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think there's quite a lot being done in this space that's really helpful. Um, One of the things is that the people who often need the support most are um, those in rural and remote settings because they're often a long way away from physically having a senior person turn up to support them on scene. Um, And sometimes they are less experienced because they're just not going to the same volume of cardiac arrests. Uh, and also, they more often know the person that has died or their family or their family's family or there's some community connection. Uh, and so one of the things that, that they've set up to help if you can't physically get a senior person on, on scene to help with that situation is they can call up a clinical desk and, um, and literally phone someone for help. Mm. and quite a few of the people in the focus groups were on that desk and manned and woman to that desk um and so they said yeah they do get these calls where people just want a, a sort of uh, reassurance that, that they can manage that this decision isn't solely resting with them um and that they you know are are doing the right thing mm. um, and that they there's not, not anything more they can do in terms of resuscitative efforts. Mm. Um, so those kind of things definitely uh, seem to be called upon and, and helpful. Mm. And there was a lot good said about the, um, about the clinical guidelines that have evolved in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, I think they're written to support 
decision-making in the best interests of the patient, mm. um, which isn't always necessarily the case in countries where there's a really a big fear of medico-legal mm. litigation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Great. So um, I guess just wrapping up, I think if people are really keen to hear more about Natalie's work, um, we will um, uh, leave a, a link um, on the podcast um, how to access this um, great article, which is in the International Emergency Nursing Journal, published in 2020. Um, thank you, Natalie, uh, for your experience and your wise words. It's an amazing um, space of research that really needs to, and coming from a strong palliative care background, I think, you know, the issue on death and dying paramedics is really a space that hasn't been looked at in any detail. So thank you for that. Um, we are going to finish just with a little question at the end. Natalie's laughing because, um, yes, this question we don't let you know that you're going to do. Um, and it sort of comes from that whole sort of idea of, yeah, um, the bucket list idea. And um, what I want to know is that if there was one thing that you could do um, before you died, um, what would it be? Um, before I died... One thing. One thing. Um, oh, now I really wish you'd asked me this in advance so I could say something profound. I've already jumped out of a plane and, and parachuted. Um, I mm, guess I would really like to uh, spend an entire year travelling around the world and taking my time uh, in various places uh, without a fear of COVID <laughs> and a pandemic. How does that sound? Let's hope you're going to live for quite a long time. Yeah, it might be a while away. <laughs> it yeah. might be. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like to know more about TRI, please go to our website. The link is in the description.